Okay, we're going to start that over. How about that? We'll start it over then. I was saying a lot of amazing things, so we'll go on and sign off now. Good night, guys. No, I'm joking. So welcome to Night Shift with Andrea up late, where we have a live true crime podcast every week, every Tuesday night at 8, 7 Central on the Andrea up late YouTube channel. Uh, we also drop in streams wherever you listen to your podcast. So usually that's the next day or so. Um, Spotify, iTunes, you name it, you know where to find it. So just give it a listen and a download, if you will. How you doing, BC? Oh, I'm good. Now everybody knows what's up. They can hear us. I know. Right? They're saying I'm just ahead. Y'all don't worry. I've got to like adjust <laughs> myself. I'm sitting on pillows. I need phone books. <laughs> Wait, can we do that anymore? Because pillows just squish down. Uh, welcome, everybody. If you're new to Night Shift, we are a live YouTube show, but we are a podcast, as I just said, so you will occasionally hear us engage in the chats. Um, if it's a case that is a bit more intricate and uh, in development and whatnot, we may have questions from our friends in the chat, so you are welcome to hop in at any time. It's free to do so, and we love to engage with you guys. Um, but if we don't engage, it's because right off the rip, it's because the case might be a little bit more intricate uh, tonight is that way a bit. And then as you know, we kind of get toward the end of the case, we really start engaging with the chats and talking to you guys. But um, tonight we will be talking about a span of years. We actually, this is a case brought to us by our buddy Davey. Uh, Davey, he's in the chats. He's a super supportive uh, listener of this show. He listens to BC's podcast, The Disruptors. He's, uh, he's all over it. He's a, he's a great guy. He's out in Tennessee now, and he has been really wanting this case covered for a while. So this is a solved case. We don't do a whole bunch of solved cases, but it has twists and turns all over the place. Um, it hails from Australia specifically. And while sound is far away. Oh, and while is that better, guys? Um, while we do cover international cases we haven't covered a lot out of australia we did the somerton man mm -hmm. um i don't know we've not done a lot of australia so it always gets a little different when we talk about international cases because like verbiage for jurisdictions and law enforcement is a bit different uh sentencing for crimes can be very different so it's always a little interesting in that aspect as well um but we do like to go over pop culture from the year of the case that we talk about every week. And this year, this case, since it does span multiple years, I'm picking one um, from one pivotal moment in the case. And, and you'll understand why later. But we picked the year uh, 19. I don't know why this is the case. We picked the year 1992. Go ahead. Keep talking. Just watch out so that we get our Yeah. Um. So 1992, BC, I hear that you have been doing homework all day on current events or pop culture from the year 1992. Is this true? I didn't have to do much research. I was around during 1992. I wasn't like a little, you know, little kid like you were. I wasn't yet. I had not yet been <laughs> right, conceived right, right. or something like that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So 1992. Uh, L.A. riots mm, after mm -hmm. the Rodney King verdict. So it ended up about 60 people were murdered during the riots. So that was basically what... Golly, was it that many? Yeah. It's hard to remember. I mean, I remember the riots, but yeah. man. Five days uh, of rioting, burning things down. Um, Dahmer, 
Jeffrey Dahmer pled guilty to 16 murders. Bill Clinton was elected president, which uh, I had to kind of pause for a second. I remember when he was elected, but mm -hmm. for whatever reason, I didn't put everything together in that year. Um, Music-wise. I've got three. Okay. And when you get done, you can switch the screens, too, so we're not looking in opposite direction. You could just look at the camera. Huh? Oh, that's true, too. I couldn't get distracted. I'm a little taller. Uh, okay, Boys to Men. Okay, what you got? They were, they had their song, End of the Road. I think that was like every high school's We've come senior song. To mm -hmm. the end oh, of I'm not the sing. road. Um, yeah. What about Jump by Criss Cross? Oh, yes. Yes. I didn't, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. You, you're 100% right on that. Uh, and right now, for anybody that is of a decent age, uh, a they're decent probably age. remembering spring break, like Myrtle Beach, Panama City, somewhere like that, listening to crisscross jump. At least that's where I remember it. What about I Will Always Love You? Oh, I've got that as well. Uh, Whitney Houston. Correct. Does a cover of Dolly Parton and stays on the uh, charts for like 14 weeks straight or something. Yeah, Dolly was always very thankful that Whitney covered that and said it breathed new life into it and she loves it. Yeah, well, it's not a bad cover song. What about, um, ooh, ooh, you ready? Mm-hmm. Baby Got Back. I had that one, Sir Mix-a-Lot, yes. 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 Uh, actually, <laughs> a little trivia. If you go back and listen to Sir Mix-a-Lot off that same album, he actually talks about having like suppressed ARs and stuff. And oh, really? And kind of yeah, I can't remember if he was in the army or not, but I think yeah. he might have been. Yeah, he's talking about like weapons in a very professional way, not like popping them in the air for the fun of it. Did you know Alan Jackson's Chattahoochee came out in '92? I did. I figured you did. Uh, Nirvana. Smells like Teen Spirit. I love it. I know you're not a gigantic fan. I'm not a huge. I'm not a huge um, Nirvana fan, and you know that everybody else knows it because I make it widely known. But that was the song that kind of broke it. Like when it came out, mm -hmm. everybody started going crazy, um, and then Nirvana was a big hit. Well, after. I mean, and you can argue with me on this or people can disagree, but I mean, I do think that that was, that sound was new. That sound mm -hmm. was different. Yeah. Um, I, they weren't the first to pioneer it, but I think the first to really make it a household sound, yeah, it you was, know, it was pretty distinct for them in that area in Seattle. Um, mm -hmm. I just couldn't get into the darkness of it. The, the heroin use and all that stuff sure. at that time, I was just too, uh, too young to really get into it. Um, Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs yes. came out that year. Probably one of the, I'll, I'll go on the record and say the 1990s had the best movies. Okay. Starting in 92 and probably going all the way up. Uh, so Wayne's World was in the theaters that year, which caused. Oh, that was in 92? Yeah. And that caused Queen. Showing. Yeah. That a little, little no secret we were going to dress up as. Yeah, Wayne, before, yeah, for Wayne Halloween, Garth. we were going to be yeah. Wayne and Garth instead of um, Buffalo Bill and the Girl in the Well. Yes. But I think we picked correctly. I think we did, too, and we nailed it. And you look amazing in Spanx. <laughs> and you're like a uh, shawl thing or whatever that was. <laughs> it was pinned around with no shirt on. Crazy. <laughs> hey, David uh, Joe. 
Yeah. Um, IBM came out with a thing that I've never heard of it called the Simon. Oh, wait. It was a touch screen phone, like portable phone. Oh, I was thinking about the old game, Simon. Yeah, it was immediately the first thing I thought was like, Simon, what? But um, it was actually a touch screen phone, huh. like portable phone. It's considered the first smartphone. I'm who used like that? that? Like who uh, would have? Scientists? people we grew up around. <laughs> I mean, well, that's before I even had my regular oh, yeah. cell phone. This, and if you pull up My Nokia, it was red. <laughs> If you pull up pictures of it, it's not, it doesn't look too, too big. It wasn't like Zach Morrison's phone from Safe by the Bell. That was his dad's car phone. <laughs> yeah. I but think. also, the first text message ever sent was December 3rd, 1992. From who? I guess from the first person that bought that assignment. What was it? What's up? <laughs> I don't know what they said. like. <laughs> was good and there was nobody to receive it because nobody could afford it no, that, <laughs> supposedly that was the first tech tra um text transmission mm -hmm. yeah uh, that's crazy crystal pepsi ew <laughs> the uh, most disgusting drink ever you know we've had this debate i already will tell you that i like coke better than pepsi to start with and i definitely don't want crystal pepsi you're not wrong about much but you're definitely wrong about that about Coke, that is. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. Um, and then the best-selling, one of the best-selling toys was the Barbie doll, totally hair. And hair? Barbie had hair like Crystal Gale. It went down to like her ankles. I'm not kidding. It's the largest uh, or the best-selling Barbie figure or whatever in history. It's called totally hair. Davey in the chats is saying, oddly enough, because he's saying that he knows loads about Australian culture. And I was saying that, you know, sadly, I do not. I'm trying to learn. And I think Davey is here to teach us. But he said, oddly enough, down in Australia, they dropped an original original Nokia brick phone from the top of their tallest reservoir. And it still worked. Oh, um, I believe it. I bet you could still play snake on that joker like nobody's business. That's all these news I've got. That's all I've got too. Katie and Victoria were born. That was it. Um, we got John in the chats. Don't be a bully, John. <laughs> all right, guys. You ready to get into this, BC? Yes. Please. Okay. So we are going to be covering, guys, a span of murders in what we for sure know was the 80s into the 90s, but likely could have actually gone back to the 70s. So this is one of those, we've covered cases like this before, and this is one of those where uh, we know of X amount of murders and a conviction was secured for those, but it likely could actually be a, a much, a double, triple that number situation. So let's see here. I don't know. It's going to be right no, here. No, you're good. Yeah. Um. All right, guys, so I'm going to get started and we're going to start with something that kind of took place a little more present day and then wrap it back and start from the beginning after this. 24-year-old Paul Onions was an ex-Navy member. He was a British guy, okay? He'd left his home in Britain. He wanted to backpack Australia. He's done this before. This was not a new, a new thing for him. So he thought, well, I'm going to leave the Navy kind of clear my head, get some sunshine and go do my thing. Right. So in 1990, he decides to go out. 
he wanted to uh, maybe obtain a job, maybe relocate to Australia after his career in the British Navy. So he packed a bag and he flew to Sydney. So there he stayed in a hostel for a little bit. And then he took a train to the outskirts of the city. And he had a plan there to hitchhike down the Hume Highway, H-U-M-E, uh, Hume Highway, to another town about 625 miles west of there. Okay, so he was going to hitchhike quite a long distance. He went inside a store. He bought a drink. And there was a man there in the parking lot, a passerby, if you will. Uh, and he noticed Paul's backpack and offered him a ride. So you got to think, guys, I mean, this is not uncommon, especially in that area. Davey in the chats mentioned earlier, the the largest moneymaker at the time, I believe, if my facts are not wrong, in Australia was that of tourism backpacking. Mm -hmm. So people would come from all over, particularly like on that side of the world and um, and do just that. They would stay in these little hostels. It was kind of an inexpensive way to stay and take these trails and go for miles and miles and miles. So this guy, this passerby says, hey, he sees Paul's backpack and says, do you, you know, do you want to ride? And Paul accepts. So the man driving introduced himself as Bill. OK, so he says, my name is Bill. Hop on in. So they they drive off a little bit later. The driver starts making some slurs about immigrants. So he starts kind of getting on this like racist tangent, something or other. Right. And so he gets on this, this slur about the immigrants that had moved to Australia. So he keeps on ranting. And this is actually making Paul uncomfortable. He's getting a little irritated. He doesn't really want to hear this guy yapping for the next mm -hmm. you know, 600 miles or however long he's going to take him. So soon the conversation starts to change. And this Bill guy, this driver, starts asking Paul questions about himself. It starts to get a little more personal. Greg in the chat said he doesn't trust Bill. Hey, hey, Beth and Greg. Um, and you have a correct assessment. So he starts to ask questions of Paul, such as he asked if Paul had any special forces type training while he had been in the Navy. He asked Paul if anyone was waiting on him at his destination. He asked Paul if anyone knew he was there. Yeah. These are all red flags. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not the Navy question. If the guy's just interested in the military, I'll let that one slide. But is anyone waiting on me? And does anyone know I'm here? <laughs> I'm probably going to stop, drop and roll on out of that car. Yeah. Right. So eventually the driver begins to kind of slow down. He's glancing often in the rearview mirror. He then does pull to the side of the road and they were just outside of the Belonglo State Park. Okay, and we're going to talk about what that was in just a moment. So it's about 60 miles from where Bill picked Paul up. So once he starts slowing down and checking that rearview mirror and pull over, he, he, meaning Paul, starts to get a little bit nervous. So Bill pops out of the car. So Paul pops out of the car. Uh, he only did it just to ask bill what he was you know what is he doing why are they stopping is everything okay so he hops back in because bill said like essentially a little forcefully for him to get back in the car but at this point i think he's just when paul talks about this later in interviews he's more like i was just uncertain you know like i was a little apprehensive of this guy not really sure what was going on so he goes on paul goes on and gets back in the car bill gets back in at this time and uh, Paul gets a little relieved. And when he asked what was going on, 
he he told him that he was going to get some tape cassettes out of the back of the car. So when Paul starts to get way more apprehensive is when Bill gets back in the car because he notices that there are already tape cassettes in the console. Okay. Like nothing that he would have to go back out. Bill had said that they were going to be losing radio service soon. And that's about the you know spot where that would happen. So he's going to go fetch those cassettes. But there were already some inside the car. So this is in an interview with 60 Minutes. Paul Onion states, quote, obviously all the questions were answered in one moment. He said in his interview, the next minute he just pulled this rope out from under the seat. And uh, when I'd seen the rope, that scared me more than the gun. So Bill had just pulled a gun. Paul gets concerned and then he then Bill reaches down and pulls a rope out from under the seat. He said, as soon as I saw the rope, I just thought, oh, that's going to be it. He's going to take a bit of time. He's going to do whatever he wants. So Paul went on and unbuckled his seatbelt. They struggle a little bit. Uh, Bill yells at him. He gets out of the car. They were back driving at this point. He gets out of the car. Uh, this Hume Highway is kind of a fairly busy highway. So now he's just running down the street, trying to flag down any cars that will stop. No cars are stopping. I can't say that I blame them, right? Mm -hmm. No cars are stopping as he's trying to get in the mall. The, but at this point, Bill is behind Paul, running after him, gun in hand, shooting. He fired a shot mm -hmm. at him. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul says that he relies on his... Navy training at this point to start running in a zigzag motion mm -hmm. uh, to try to avoid the bullet. So he shot once, he missed him. No one stops till no cars are stopping. The driver, uh, Bill, caught up with him. They start to wrestle in the middle of this highway, y'all. So the cars are swerving around them. And then Paul says, quote, I was just about to give up and say, oh, he's one. He's one. I better give up and go back. And I thought if I go back there, it just seemed that that was going to be the end. If I go back there, I just sort of made up my mind what I was going to do. He said, I thought the next vehicle that comes over the hill, I'm just going to stop it no matter what. And he later says, you know, whether it runs over me, what, whatever happens, <laughs> I'm not I'm getting in a car like I'm getting away yeah. from this. So no, no matter what, he decided to do that. He said, I thought I'd rather stop a car and get killed in the process than go back to that vehicle and face an end that way. Uh, he was very smart. I will tell you this. If you were ever abducted, you do what you can to not go. And we'll talk about that to the second place, like whatever the second place is, or try to avoid yeah. going to the second place. Yeah. Um, so luckily, uh, very, very luckily at this time, a woman named Joanne Barry, she had just left the nearby town about half an hour earlier, and she was driving toward the Belongolo State Forest, and she was in a van. She had her sister, their five combined children between them and there. They're about to go kind of do a little nature hike, right? Mm -hmm. So she stops when she sees Paul running away from a, with a guy that was trying to wrestle him to the ground. That's all her perspective is at this point. So... Paul yells, help me, he's got a gun, uh, per Joanne. Help me, he's got a gun, help me, he's got a gun. She said, panic, absolutely panicked. He was shaking and petrified. So he opens the sliding door, dives in behind the front seats. Uh, then she sees the other man's gun and quickly put the van in reverse, backs up, turns around, and heads back in the direction she had just come from. So... Paul will later say that as she drove away, he looked back and at one last glance, he saw Bill standing in the middle of the road, quote, smirking. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that should tell 
you a lot. <laughs> I feel yeah. like that he's not trying to run and flee. Yeah. You know, he's just kind of standing there like, yeah. all right, guy, right? right? Uh -huh. So she takes Paul. Keep in mind, though, Paul was about to do what? He was going on a backpacking adventure. Mm -hmm. So he had a lot of belongings with him, which obviously he inadvertently left in Bill's mm. car when he had to flee. So he left his backpack that had his passport, other personal items, his name, his address. So can you imagine the fear mm -hmm. and the amount of time we'll talk about later, wondering if this guy's going to come back for me? He's, he knows his name and where he lives. I mean, yeah. he's got a lot of personal information on this guy. So uh, all of his effects are in Bill's car. Joanne takes him to the nearest police station. That was about 13 miles away. They both filed a report with the police who said that without a license plate or this bad guy's name, obviously it's going to be very difficult to try to catch this man. Um, they kept calling it a mugging. And Paul is saying, no, this is basically, this is like attempted murder. Like mm -hmm. something very, very bad was about to happen. He didn't even mug me. Like I, I just left my vehicle, my things in his vehicle when I fled him. Yeah. Um, so Paul said that they gave him a, about the equivalent of $7 to get back to the British embassy that was in Sydney mm. so that he could get a new passport. Um, and that's all according to BBC. So take that little nugget of a story and put that in your hold on part of your brain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay? And, and we're going to come back to it, but that happened again. Remember that happened in 1990. All right. So Ivan Malat, this is who we are going to be talking about tonight. He was dubbed the backpacker, Kid, killer or the backpacker murderer, however, whoever you read a source from. So he was born on December 27th, 1944 in New South Wales to Croatian, to a Croatian immigrant father. His dad's name was Stephen and his mother was Australian named Margaret Elizabeth. Uh, he was the fifth born of 14 children, 10 of which were boys. So they have 14 children, 10 boys, um, he had two older siblings that did pass away. Um, but so 14 of them, big, big family. Ivan's father worked long shifts as a wharf laborer. So you can already tell it's a pretty physical job. Uh, and he was, he did that most days out of the week and he wouldn't come home until pretty late at night. So this was said to have made him obviously pretty exhausted. He was grumpy. He was at times violent. Uh, his dad was a very heavy drinker and I think he was very heavy handed as well. So Boris, you will hear me reference Boris pretty often. This is one of Ivan's many brothers. Mm -hmm. Boris is very uh, talkative on this matter. He's been more than happy to conduct interviews, be a part of books that have been written, answer any questions in relation to his brother. Now, he's pretty much one of the only ones in the family that has really wanted to do so. Uh, and we will talk about their ideas on Ivan as the as the show goes on. But Boris, uh, when you hear me reference him, or just remember that's one of Ivan's brothers. So Boris Malat recalls loud and vicious arguments between his mom and dad. Uh, he said that given their living situation, having once lived together in a large shed during many of their moves across New South Wales, they were not, they were impoverished. So they lived in like dirt floors and very um, small living conditions, particularly with this many of them, with 16 of them. Okay. So he said that um, there was never an escape from the yelling and the physical assault that his mother endured. So you've got all these children bearing witness to their father um, 
abusing their mother. Okay. So Boris would say that his mom was struck at least once a week by his father. You never knew when it was going to come. But when it came to disciplining the children, mom, Margaret, occasionally would have a fiery temper as well. So she hit Boris once with a knife and he says he can't remember what in the world for, but he does still have a scar from that. And he says, quote, nearly cut my bloody arm off. So I don't know if that's hit him with a knife or cut him. <laughs> like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. everything says hit him with a knife. Yeah. Uh, there's another time when he was hit so hard. He bore us with a tomato steak that it broke his arm. So bad. Mm -hmm. This is very, very bad stuff. Right. So uh, many of the 10 Malot boys were well known to local police as they were raised. They were they were all kind of getting into just you know, like vandalism, petty theft, just getting in trouble around mm -hmm. town a lot, these boys. And people knew of them around town, knew of this family. And so Ivan actually landed himself in a residential, what they call a residential school. It's kind of like an alternative type school yeah. by the time he was 13. Now, from all accounts, everything that I can read, it looks like uh, this school was this wasn't so great necessarily like the way they went about treating the students there. So one of the uh, lead investigators on this case, Clive Smalls, he's also very vocal. He was very, very close to this case during the investigation and development of it all. And he will say that, you know, if you look at it from like a profile standpoint, he, Ivan was kind of dehumanized from a very early age on, um, mm. you know, we talk about this happening with, prisoners and things like that uh, in, you know, in that have been convicted. And so if they spend half of their adult life and we talk about like the dehumanization of that or, you know, what that does to our psyche, mm -hmm. this started with Ivan pretty early on. So he landed the first one at age 13. Uh, he ultimately spent about half of his teenage years in institutions. When he was 10 years old, he was quote said to have had the mind of a killer. So according to Boris, he says that, Ivan had a longing to cause pain. So he said it was, quote, built into him. It was a cruel streak that ran deep. Now, these are his brother's words. And he said, and Boris was older than Ivan, so he might have some wisdom in this perspective like that, like seeing him coming up. But he said from the age of around 10 or so, he could tell how kind of miswired mm. Ivan was. Mm -hmm. And he said, Boris said, quote, he was going to kill somebody from the age of 10. It was built into him. He had a different psyche. He's a psychopath. And it just manifested itself with, I can do anything. I can do anything. I knew he was on a one-way trip. I knew it was just a matter of how long. And you know, you and I talk about that. Mm -hmm. Talk about certain people give you a certain feeling. You start seeing things about them. And, um, and it's interesting how you can pick up on that. Uh, but Boris said that of the age of 14 for Ivan, uh, Ivan's brain had for sure been wired to be a murderer. Boris went on to say, quote, Ivan was pretty normal up until age 12, 14. I heard about it from his mates. You know, they'd all boast about how they'd go out at night and do things with machetes. I heard he cut a dog in half with a machete while he was growing up. So he heard this uh, from more than one account that uh, this machete talk and about this dog being cut straight in half. So, the siblings, you know, like I said, they were all pretty troubled. And this family 
due to a few things, I think due to his dad's drinking, due to the abuse, uh, the domestic abuse with the mother and then the neglect and abuse with the children uh, and with as many of them as there were, they just kind of were cordoned off in their little part of town and didn't really have a lot of co-minglings with a whole bunch of other people. I mean, the boys knew other, had other friends and stuff, but most people will say they really kind of kept to themselves in that sense. Um, and they, the townspeople would say, well, we knew like we couldn't, if someone, if someone let's say were to like buck up on one of these guys that's given them problem, they knew they had 10 of them to deal with. So they kind of were just running wild. Yeah. Just like that's feral. Common. Yeah. Yeah. Like one town or one city will have four or five cousins and brothers. And all it takes is one or two of them to get, you know, a little sideways with someone. Yeah. And then they realize like, don't mess with the uh, fill in the blank family. You know, right. Whoever this family is. Yeah. Well, the Malott family. Don't mess with the Malott family. And that's that's kind of Boris said the same thing. And so did that Clive Small, who Davey just clarified, was the police commissioner um, at the time of all of this. So let's talk about kind of the trouble that Ivan started getting himself into. At 17 years old, he was in a juvenile detention center for theft. Two years later, he was involved in a shot break in. This criminal behavior continues. OK, it's starting to worsen. It's escalating. We talk about this often. Um in a lot of these cases. So with right now he's escalating with like nonviolent crimes minus the chopping and half of the dog. Okay. Uh, we we've got in terms of in the town, he's doing a lot of breaking and entering uh, theft, all these kinds of things. So uh, we don't know anything about wetting the bed yet. We're looking at, they're talking about the um, McDonald's, triad here in the chats about the wetting of the bed, the harming of the animals, the setting fires. Mm -hmm. um, you will notice that we're going to have two out of three of those before this paragraph is over, though. We don't have any confirmation on the wetting of the bed. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if his parents were involved enough to know or tell about it, unless Boris could answer that question. So uh, we have him in 1964. He was sentenced to 18 months for a break in entering. A month after that, he was arrested for driving a stolen car and was sentenced to two years hard labor. So when Ivan was 17 years old, he evidently confessed to his brother Boris that in, in this event of he was going to rob or whatever this taxi cab driver, I don't know if the intent was to steal the car or to rob him. Either way, he shot the taxi driver. So now we've just escalated up another notch, right? Now we've got a violent crime during a stick-up gone awry, the man was left paralyzed from the waist down. This man's name was Neville Knight, by the way. Uh, but but he, Ivan, was never caught for this. And actually, an innocent man was convicted of this crime, served five years in prison before that got, before we figured out that it was yeah. Ivan. Okay, so now we're really starting to accelerate in the escalation of the crimes. What you know about that, BC? We've got late teens and early 20s now, right? So if we are looking at a psychopath, if you will, someone with probably a, a socio-type. Mm -hmm. So basically devoid of guilt mm -hmm. um, and has already shown the streak of abuse. Now starting to commit crimes. Um, it's only going to get worse. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, that's what's happening, right? Yes. Escalation. And that's what we can. And that's what you can always anticipate. So obviously the, the hacking of the dog is a 
big fat red flag. But, you know, I think his brother's onto something when he says that from an early age, something was off. But we see it in these teenage years. And this is how it this is in the manuals. This is what you will read. This is how things escalate in about that time. That's why you don't often get a diagnosis of, let's say, a schizophrenia or a schizophreniform or mm -hmm. um, antisocial personality disorder. We don't often get a true diagnosis, borderline, if you will, until late teens, early 20s. And that's often when these symptoms really, really manifest themselves and they can properly diagnose um, but you, that doesn't mean you can't see symptoms of these things before. You just can't properly diagnose until around this time. And he's textbook right now. So now we're looking at him between the ages of like 17 and 20. So in September of 1967, he was 23 years old and he was sentenced to three years for theft. So now his conviction, his time sentencing mm -hmm. is increasing as well. So his crimes are increasing in violence and his time served is increasing, which is adding to the dehumanization again component. Yes. He's still not out and about in a normal life. Mm -hmm. So in April 1971, he was charged with the abduction of two 18 year old hitchhikers. So here's where he decides to hone his skill or at least get started with it. He did rape one of the girls. So the way that worked is he finds them. He again, it's the hitchhikers, So it's an easy target for him. Mm -hmm. He can pick his prey, so to speak. So these two 18-year-old young women get in the car with him. Uh, he does eventually tie them up. They're at knife point. He tells them that essentially he's going to have sex with one of them. He didn't care who it was, but he was going to have sex with one of them or else they were just both going to die. So after talking about this for a minute, one of them finally said, okay, if you if you do that, will, we, can, will you let us go? Mm -hmm. And he said, yes. And so she essentially, I don't even want to use the word agreed, but volunteered herself right. um, to be the victim here. Uh, obviously, there was no consent. They had a yeah. knife at their heads. So um, they did. They had sex in the car the whole time. He was staring at the other girl that was in the back seat, um, but telling her not to look, which, to be honest, surprised me. Yeah. I would have thought he for sure would have wanted her to, to show mm -hmm. you to show her his control over and this. And to be girl. able to see the reaction. Yeah. Her. Yeah. To enjoy that. But right. he's telling her to look away and mm -hmm. he's not looking at yeah. who he is. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also, as far as we know, as far as we have accounts for the first one. Okay. Got right. It. Yeah. Yeah. So again, this has escalated from prior behavior, but this behavior then will go on and escalate itself as well. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So uh, that happens. He unties them. And then they ask if they, I mean, they had wits about them. I will tell you that these girls mm -hmm. knew how to survive. So they ask him if he'll take them to a gas station for something to drink. Mm. So, uh, I guess he was so proud of himself, mm -hmm. you know, that he thought yeah. that he could just do this. Like he's yeah. going to get away with this. So they all go in the gas station. And with the aid of a couple men in the gas station, these girls get away. They tell them what's happening and they get away. Mm -hmm. All right. So he awaits trial for this because he is, he is charged with this. He was then involved in a string of robberies with some of his brothers before he took, he, he faked his own suicide. He went to this place cause he doesn't want to go to trial for this mm -hmm. rape of this girl and attempted kidnapping. So he uh, goes and leaves like his shoes and his wallet at this place called the gap, which was a place where 
um, people were known to commit suicide, like jump off a okay. ravine kind of a mm -hmm. thing. He left his stuff there, staged it to look like a suicide, and he flees to New Zealand for a while. Okay. So okay. while in New Zealand, he's kind of laying low. Um, <clears throat> and he actually, his mother was admitted to the hospital back in Australia in 1974. And that's when he was arrested again for this now. Mm -hmm. So they get him in custody for it in 1974. But the uh, kidnap and rape and all that failed at trial. And let me tell you why. It's because the two 18-year-olds that he had kidnapped and raped the one uh, were a lesbian couple. And this was used like essentially sickeningly so as a defense mm -hmm. that they like, huh, they don't go to say that they didn't take pleasure in it because they weren't or whatever, but it was because that they were lesbian that this did not essentially they couldn't call it a rape on okay. a lesbian woman. And that was Australia. Australia, 1975 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I'll have to, Davey may know the answer to this one. Um, if it wasn't still illegal in 1975, to be homosexual was not long before that, as far as I know, in Australia. Okay. So obviously just with those cultural concerns, but um, I mean, he tied them up with a knife yeah. and rigged one of yeah. them. But because of their sexual orientation, they can't call that rape. That, that was wild to me. Yeah, so, that, yeah. um, he was arrested. So that was 1974, 75. So he then in 1975, so right off of the heels of this, right after the, heel, the heels of getting acquitted for this stuff, he meets a woman named Karen. Karen is actually his cousin's wife. Or no, sorry, girlfriend. She was 16 at the time and she was pregnant with his cousin's child. He meets her and they get married in 1983. She leaves him, though, very quickly in 1987 mm -hmm. due to his domestic violence toward her. They divorced in October of 89. So this was a very short lived marriage that he had with his cousin's girl who was pregnant with his cousin's baby. And in retribution, he burned down her parents' house. So now we have the fire. fire yeah. So his rage turned to arson and he did say he had threatened her with arson before. Mm. Um, he was, he would just be rage filled with her. Like I said, there was the abuse with her. She thankfully wasn't going to stand for it, decided to leave pretty quickly, but then he did what he said and he burned down her parents' house. So we will say um, that there was another set back in 71 um, of hitchhikers that he, two female hitchhikers that, or backpackers, excuse me, that he was charged with raping. Mm -hmm. So he had the, the two girls and he raped one of them. He also had two more girls. He raped both of them. He did go to trial for this. And evidently the, well, sources will say that the prosecution was sloppy in their case. I've also read sources that say when it came to like the lab techs and the DNA transfers mm -hmm. and things like that, things got super awry yeah. okay. and they weren't able to convict him on it. Mm -hmm. um, the girls made their statements. They called him out. They said, you know, all the things, but they, there was some weirdness with some DNA in the lab. So in the late 80s, 
backpackers start going missing in that Belongalo Forest State Park that we've been talking about. All right. So Belongalo Forest is about an hour from Sydney to give you an idea. So just think of any of your state parks, your natural areas where people go to hike and, you know, trails and these kinds of things. So like I said, it's about an hour from Sydney and it's open to the public. It's consisting mainly of pine trees. It was like a pine forest and it expands to just at around 9,500 acres. Okay. So that's 2,500 hectares if you wanted to know. I already knew it. I did the conversion Did you? In my did head. you? Did you yeah. know that one hectare is approximately 2.5 2. Yeah, acres? 2.5 acres. Okay. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So like I said, these backpackers in the early 80s are like people are just missing their loved ones. Usually it's teenagers, early twenties that are, mm -hmm. you know, like I said, going to stay at these hostels or go to like music festivals or just kind of backpack around the outback, if you will. But families are starting to report these people missing. So on September 19th, 1992, some runners were going by an area. Let me ask you this. They state that there was a bad smell. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there are bodies then that were found. So we'll talk about that. But this would have been, I believe this was five months later. And this would have been in September of 92. So September in Australia, five months. Could he have... So these bodies were partially buried with leaves and sticks from all accounts, not like buried, buried, gotcha, yeah. but five months later, I mean, how do we still have a smell? Would we still have a smell five months later? I don't, I'm thinking about animals. I'm thinking about, yeah. um, it weather, depends on a lot of the temperature. Yeah. The weather, like if had it been cold for a long time yeah. and then it starts warming up maybe, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yes, uh, I knew about. Yeah, I don't know enough about their climate. Yeah, I don't know, but I just felt like, regardless of climate, that just felt so long. Yeah, you still have it, though. I guess. Yeah. Um, those bones in my closet still smell like funky. If you no, okay. Um, so police, so the um police investigate the first body. The second body was found the next morning around 98 feet away from the first. They were identified as British backpackers, Caroline Clark, who was 21 years old, and Joanne Walters, who was 22 years old. They had gone missing while they were hitchhiking from Sydney to Western Australia on April 19th of 1992. So it had been, you know, five months prior. So they were actually found five months to the day from when they were reported missing. They were both lying face down, arms bound behind their backs. Uh, and they were covered by sticks and leaves and, and just brush and debris. Mm -hmm. um, so Walters, the police determined, had been gagged, sexually assaulted, and stabbed 14 times in her back and chest. One of the nine stab wounds on her back severed her spinal cord, um, which would have caused paralysis before the fatal stab wounds to her chest. All right. Keep that in mind. Don't forget that tidbit. So police believe that Caroline Clark had been marched away from her friend's body and killed with 10 shots to the back of her head. But it says that they think that she had almost been used as target practice. So she had a red bandana wrapped around her face and the way her bullet 
entry wounds were and from the distance that they would have been shot, mm -hmm. they were all shot at the exact same distance in different parts of her head, almost as though investigators when recreating that scene think that her head had been like shot, turned a few more shots, turn, go back to the same spot, shoot some more, just okay. like a target practice. Hmm. Um, and they also believe that these 10 gunshot wounds to her head were post-mortem. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about escalation, guys, Mm-hmm. Not only in in the violence, but even the um, he was sloppy. He he yeah. let other you know those those four other girls got away, or excuse me, those two other girls got away. Mm -hmm. um, his first guy got away running down the highway, right? Mm -hmm. So or Bill's first guy got away running down the highway. Mm -hmm. So you know what I'm saying? Like he's learning to okay, maybe if I come here, I, I can go to this place, and nobody's getting away. Now I'm gonna kill him. And time spent with. And now I've got time. Yeah. Now I can play. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So the discovery of these bodies made the paper back in Birmingham, England, where a certain Paul Onions, you remember our guy who was kidnapped and, you know, or potentially kidnapped, but dove in that van and got away in 1990. Paul Onions had returned home. I guess he was like, forget this Australian nonsense. Now mm -hmm. I won't be yeah. spending my post-Navy career there. Mm -hmm. He had returned home to Britain. And in that newspaper that he received, he sees this news about the discovery of these bodies um, and the location of where they were. So when he sees the map that's in the article that he reads and it identifies the nearest town to the bodies as Boral, 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 I don't know how to say it. I'm not Australian. Um, it was exactly where he had reported his attempted murder two years prior. Mm -hmm. So now he's got his antenna up. So then in October of 1993, there was a man foraging for firewood in the forest and he came upon some more human remains, which were ultimately identified as Australian hitchhikers. Deborah Everest, who was 19 years old, and James Gibson, also 19. They'd gone missing from Sydney on December 29th, 1989. So this was October of 1993. So now we're a few years later on this one. Four years later, they were found. They had been hitchhiking to what's called Confest, and it was it was like a Burning Man type festival. So a music okay. festival. Um, there's actually some cute pictures of them online, like exactly what you think, like bandana, long hair, they're pumped to go hiking, go to this mm -hmm. festival, you know. Um, so along Hume Highway, other people eventually found his James Gibson's camera, his backpack uh, in the weeks that followed, but nothing else happened until four years later when their bodies were discovered there in that same Belongolo, Belongolo, uh, state park. Okay. So we're seeing a lot of consistencies here. Their bodies were also found covered lightly with sticks and leaves, just like the ones prior. So James Gibson's body was found in the fetal position. He'd also been stabbed multiple times in the back, including Again, a stab wound to the back of his neck, which severed his spinal cord. Um, he finally, the fatal wounds would be stab wounds to his heart, lungs, and liver. Uh, and then Everest had been beaten to death. So she was found with severe skull fractures, a broken jaw. The authorities there said that they decided then to set up a task force on October 13th of 1993. They now are worried they've got a serial killer. Okay. So... Let's talk a little bit about those stab wounds that severed the spinal cord. If you read some sources, 
if if you haven't looked at the case as a whole, some sources will say that the stab wounds were so deep that it severed the spinal cord. In fact, it did exactly what he needed it to do, right? Mm -hmm. So most accounts from these medical examiners or the coroners, whatever the term is for what they use in Australia, will say that they think that these severed spinal cord wounds happened before death. So these were not post-mortem. This wasn't, or this wasn't, um, you know, like an accidental mm -hmm. as you're flailing and I'm stabbing you. This was looked at to be intentional because now his victims are incapacitated mm -hmm. and he can take his time with them and he can do the things with them that he did. Um, and that makes sense if he did use the first, you know, we were talking about using uh, her head as target practice. Mm -hmm. um, and to your point, he's got the time now. So <clears throat> the task force for for all of this is set up, like I said, in October of 93. So the next month in November, police are searching the forest around the body. They were searching the forest, excuse me, and they found the body of Simone Schmidl. So now, y'all, they've set up a grid. They're they're expanding their search in the state park. Uh, they know to continue to look there. And now everything's making sense, too, because now they're realizing, after you know, like, as it's happening, we've been having all these reports of missing backpackers. Mm -hmm. Now we're finding the bodies. Okay. So... They found the body on November 1st of 1993 of Simone Schmidl. She was a German tourist and she disappeared while she was hitchhiking from Sydney to Melbourne or Melbourne. I've learned they say Melbourne from Sydney to Melbourne along the Hume Highway on January 20, 20th of 1991. Uh, so it was a couple years later that her body was found. She had also been stabbed through the spine, causing paralysis before multiple other stab wounds to her organs did kill her. Um, but police found clothing there that didn't belong to her. Mm -hmm. So there was clothing at her scene that was not hers. Then on November 4th, so three days later, they find two more bodies nearby and identify them as the missing German backpackers, Gabor, who is 21, and Anja, who is 20. I'm not going to try the last names. They had disappeared after leaving Sydney on December 26th of 91. I know I'm throwing a lot of dates at you guys. Um, I will highlight or say again, the things that are super important for you to remember, but they had been gone same for a couple of years before their bodies were found. Again, that was Gabor and Anja, these German hitchhikers, 21 and 20 years old. Uh, they were around Christmas time going to be hitchhiking along that Hume highway Again, I keep saying Hume Highway. That seems to be our landmark, right? All the way to Western Australia. The clothing, though, that was found with Simone's body three days prior that did not belong to her actually was found to belong to, I want to say it right, to Gabor, to the to the male German hitchhiker. Um, so out of these two, we've got... Sorry, y'all. I've got copious notes. Um, so I think. I anyway, so the female Anja was actually decapitated. So this is the first time that we've seen decapitation as anything that he's done. Her skull has actually never been found. Um, the male was shot six times in the back of the head. He was possibly strangled. His hyoid bone was broken. Uh, we talk about that a lot, guys. That can happen in in strangulation. Uh, some accounts do report a garrote next to one of the bodies, uh, but I've only heard that once or twice. So I don't know if that's just cause not everybody knows about it or if mm -hmm. it's incorrect. 
Uh, either way, four days later, Joanne Barry. So she's the one, she's the savior in the van, right? Who pulls up with her sister and all the kids mm -hmm. and saves Paul onions in 1990. Joanne Barry called police to say she'd rescued a hitchhiker in January of 1990 from a man with a gun near the forest and reported it to the police uh, in that town. The Sydney, this is what the Sydney Morning Herald reports. Okay. Paul decides to go on and call the hotline on November 13th. And he told his story directly because now again, he's back in Britain, but he's starting to get a, like this news is breaking fast and, and spreading. So now Joanne and Paul, I just, I kind of like their little alliance and all of this are called, you know, they're both calling saying, Hey, this crazy thing could be related. So unfortunately though, uh, police never found any investigative report that was made of Paul's incident. Uh, other than a single entry in a notebook of the officer who took the report. So I don't know that it ever made it to like a proper Probably wouldn't report. Yeah. Right. Because back then everything still would have been handwritten reports. Mm -hmm. So usually back then you would do a formal handwritten report, but it would usually be based on um, a crime and then suspect information, that sort of thing. So probably they may have looked at it and been like, well, well, and they, and they had already told him, like, we don't have his name yeah. or his license plate. So, uh, yeah, even though Paul could give a good description of the vehicle and mm -hmm. the man's face and yeah, the guy had a gun that he shot at him. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in that time, it probably would have been at least like a robbery report or something that, you know, that of that nature, but <laughs> yeah, either way. Okay. So. <clears throat> excuse me, Ivan Malat was already on their radar, though, because he'd already had that criminal history. Remember his whole upbringing? Everyone in the town knew that family, like we spoke on. Mm -hmm. He had been working doing road construction and repair in this area where the various hitchhikers had disappeared. So another backpacker, an Australian woman named Mary, had actually called the police hotline to report that a man matching Ivan Malat's description had attempted to abduct her and a friend in 1977 in that same town. Further investigation showed that Malat had been charged with, but not convicted of that abduction and rape of the two other females in 1971. So now it's like, you know, we've talked about this and just to BC's point, there weren't databases that we know of now and, you know, things online and Excel sheets and ways to, um, put all of these things together and like build a cumulative folder on any of these incidences mm -hmm. or close calls, if you will, you know, to where you can be like, whoa, 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 we have a pattern here. It was kind of at the mercy of the handwritten report and kind of where it got filed, I would imagine. So it'd be much more difficult to find that pattern to, to be able to wrap it all up with one big bow. But now, now that these things are happening, it, the dominoes are mm -hmm. falling in that way and they're, they're starting to see uh, how this might all be related. So authorities actually counted that between 1989 and 1992, the killer acted every 12 months. This is kind of how they're looking at what happened. His target of choice was young travelers, both men and women whom he picked up as they tried to grab rides from strangers to Sydney to Melbourne. And, you know, I think that it's an obvious choice as to why these would be his victims um, but it's because these are people who are going to be far away from their home, far away from their families. He even said it with Paul when he told him his name was Bill. He mm -hmm. picked up Paul and he said, is anyone expecting you? Does anyone know you're here? I mean, so that's 
that is fully what was conscious on his brain when he picked his victims. And that's why these backpackers were perfect pickings. And he goes to these remote areas of this forest. So, you know, save a runner that goes off trail or something like that. It's very likely that you won't. In fact, this was interesting to me. And I know, you know, every country has uh, different cuisine, different animals, different things that are very normal for them. But it made me chuckle a bit in America listening and reading about this because uh, when they first talked about the Caroline Clark, when the first two bodies in 92 were found and those runners spoke on the smell, they said, we just thought it was a dead kangaroo. And so more than a few times you hear, we just thought it was a dead kangaroo mm -hmm. um, throughout this story. Uh, so wildlife abound. But anyway, so yeah, I mean, he's taking them off trail. It, it's, it was the perfect picking for him and perfect scenario. So now, like, the media is going crazy. We have accounts of a serial killer. And so past reports start coming up about the Malott brothers. They were known to possess firearms, which, whatever. But they lived about an hour away from the Belonglo Forest. Okay, so now we know that they grew up living not far away from there, meaning he's going to have a direct working knowledge of this area. And now his job is to work on these roads right outside of that forest area. So Paul Onions was flown to Australia on May 2nd of 1994. So now he's four years after he was um, nearly kidnapped and murdered by Ivan. And he identified Ivan as the man who had attempted to kill him in 1990 from like a from a picture, from a photographic mm -hmm. lineup. OK, this was the strongest evidence they've got so far tying Ivan to those crimes at the time. Uh, Paul said he was floored. He said he had lived in fear. Like when he would think about it, he would just break out in sweats. Um, I don't know about at this point continuing to do so, but he said that when he, the second he saw the man's picture, he knew immediately. He was like, oh, that's for sure him. He called himself Bill, but that's him. Mm -hmm. um, and remember that he called himself Bill because we're going to come back to that as well. So Ivan was actually arrested on May 22nd, 1994. And so when they coach that, we're going to talk about what they found when they go to this house. But the authorities realized that there was camping gear and other items that belonged to the backpackers. There was like a blue tent and a hammock that specifically belonged to Caroline Clark um, lying in his home. Again, I'll put these pictures up on Instagram on the Andrea Uplate channel, but uh, I'll, I'll drop all that stuff tomorrow. But and I'll show you some of these pictures. Uh, but when we talk about trophies taken and things like that, mm -hmm. he's got backpackers. So he's got people with actual like equipment. It's yeah. not, you know, just yeah. someone walking down a trail. They've got all this mm -hmm. stuff with them. So he's like taking their camping gear and stuff mm -hmm. with him, putting it around his house. We find out like giving a lot of it to relatives. So a lot of his relatives unbeknownst mm -hmm. to them had items that belonged to these victims. In fact, there's a super spooky picture. I'll put it up on the Instagram page tomorrow of Ivan's girlfriend at the time wearing this shirt that actually belonged to one of the victims. And she, I mean, she has no idea, but she's standing on rocks over water, mm -hmm. posing for a picture of her boyfriend, and she's wearing the shirt belonging to oh. one of his victims. Okay. So once they were able to place Ivan under arrest, they go in and search the premises. I think there were like seven houses and buildings around there. And they found a postcard. Y'all listen to this from someone from New Zealand, who referred to Ivan as, quote, Bill. The same firearms cartridges, electrical tape, found at some of the other murder scenes. And then there was Indonesian currency. Well, Ivan had never 
been to Indonesia, but do you know who had? The German backpackers. Um, they had spent time there right before traveling to Australia. Okay. Also, we're going to take it back real quick. But when you combine all of this information before they searched the house with the 1971 rape charge, that's how they knew that they could hone in on Ivan. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's when they placed an intercept on his home. So let me tell you who he lived with. If you're not careful, a lot of the sources will just say his girlfriend. Well, his girlfriend is actually someone named Shirley Swar. And Shirley is Ivan's sister. Okay. And it is widely believed, even amongst his own siblings, that they had had a sexual relationship for many, many years. He and his sister. In fact, one of his brothers was quoted as saying, not sure what's the difference between her and another last down the road. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, same, same, I guess. Oh. Oh. So he and Shirley shared this home together. And this is the picture, or this is the home where they searched and found all of these belongings. Now, there's a... Um, uh, a psychiatrist or like a, a behavioral analyst that looked at the pictures of this, this home and said that if you didn't know better, you wouldn't know Shirley lived there, meaning his belongings were strewn everywhere, his guns, his stuff, his things. And mm -hmm. they say that that points toward a narcissistic, um, you know, part of his personality disorder or psychopathic behavior, either way. Um, just his essentially his need for control and dominance. Mm -hmm. um, there's like a thread of that through everything that he's done. And they say that the pictures of this home kind of speak to that as well. Now, this is interesting about Shirley, though. When you talk to his youngest brother, George, uh, Ivan's youngest brother, George says, Shirley was in on it. And then he says, I can't really say Shirley did commit murders. All I can do is say she was involved. So Shirley and Ivan also allegedly, like I said, had a sexual relationship since the 1950s, y'all. He was born in 44. So since he was a young teen, so 15, 16, Whoa. he's having sex with his sister. Mm. Right. So we're about to start wrapping it up. Um, I'm doing my best to make this a one part show, but I will tell you what, there's a lot. Um, mm -hmm. and then Davey in the chats and I actually talked about maybe collabing on a part two or something like that, because there's a lot more to talk about. But Ivan was 49 at the time. He was charged with killing the seven backpackers on May 31st, 1994. He denies responsibility the whole time. He says he was innocent. He says, I don't know who did it. Quote, it was up to them to prove my guilt, not to me, not for me to prove my innocence, which, yes, that's how the justice system works, Ivan. Uh, he remained in custody until his trial in 96. His attorneys tried to argue that one of his brothers was the real killer, but Ivan was actually found guilty on all seven charges on July 27th of 1996. He received seven life sentences for the murders. Remember, there is no death penalty. Mm. Um Australia is very lenient on these things, as well as an additional term for attacking Paul Onions. Uh, but just because he was caught, however, doesn't mean that he was taken out of the spotlight. In 1997, he tried to attempt um, an escape from the prison he was with along in alongside a like a convicted drug dealer guy. But they failed the escape. The drug dealer hung himself, I think, right after that. And Ivan was transferred to a maximum security super prison. Uh, in New South Wales. 
called a super prison. Yes. Yeah. But it doesn't have the death penalty. It's like a semi super prison. Yeah. So much of his time in prison was spent trying to appeal his convictions. Again, he, he maintained his innocence for the rest of his life. Um, he initiated hunger strikes. He swallowed razor blades and staples. Uh, at one point, he actually used a plastic knife to cut his pinky off. <laughs> I don't know. It's not funny. Did he do it? He, he did. He did. A plastic knife, and he cut his pinky off. They took him to the clinic where they basically just bandaged him up and called it a day. That's, that is um, all of this was in just vying for more appeals and things like that. That's all that was. It was just acting out, being a toddler. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, eventually, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. He was moved to the medical ward of the Long Bay Correctional Center. And then on October 29th, 2019, uh, he died at age 74. You know, when he was in prison, his, his family all kind of differed on their ideas of his guilt or innocence. They were kind of split on it. Most mm -hmm. of them maintained his innocence um, most of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a couple that say, say otherwise. We know that Boris, his brother, has long since said that his his brother was, you know, just off the rails, mentally ill, and things that he did mm -hmm. it. Um, but then, in okay, so in 2007, so keep it this back in 2007, long before he was sick, before he was diagnosed with cancer. He has a great nephew. Ivan has a great nephew. This great nephew's name is Matthew Muleman. Matthew Muleman, okay? Matthew thought that his great uncle was guilty. But with their age difference, so in, 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 in 2007, Matthew was only 14 years old. So it's not like they spend all this time together or anything like that. Most mm -hmm. of Matthew's time growing up, his, his uncle was in prison. But Matthew changed his name to Matthew Malott. Malott was his oh. mom's maiden name. And he thought his uncle was guilty. He changes his name to his uncle's last name. Um, even though he was a toddler, like I said, when Ivan was imprisoned. But a friends would say that friends would say that Matthew would brag on his uncle Ivan. And so then he takes it further. So in 2010, November of 2010, mm -hmm. Matthew, who was 17 at the time, and his friend Cohen Klein invited their other buddy, this guy named David, out to celebrate David's birthday. They said they were going to go have some drinks and smoke some pot and enjoy David's birthday. Instead of doing that, Matthew actually tormented and killed David with a double-sided axe. Um I, we can go on and on about that one. I've got a lot of case files from that one, but the judge was just horrified when she mm -hmm. was sentencing 17 year old Matthew to this because she said over and over, essentially like you enjoyed this. Yeah. You enjoyed this. Um, this wasn't even about him dying. It was about you enjoying the process. Uh, he wrote multiple poems prior to the murder and since that he's been in prison about it. Mm -hmm. um, talking about death, talking about how he won't bat an eye. It doesn't, make him feel a certain kind of way uh the he recorded on his phone the murder of his friend so they have they played the audio actually at matthew's trial again if you're if you've lost me matthew is ivan's great nephew who then as a teenager takes someone to the belonglo state park someone his 17 year old friend yeah. and um 
he actually had him lie on his stomach on the ground and I won't get into all of it, but he had him lie on the stomach on, you know, on his stomach. And essentially he's accusing him of running around, like quote, telling his business. Mm -hmm. I don't know the kid's 17. I don't know what kind of business he thought he had, but he kept saying, you know, he told my business, this poor boy that David boy, um, I will not listen to it. I did read the transcripts of it though. And he complies at every turn. He's like, no, I didn't. And I'll mm -hmm. do whatever. And I, I really didn't, man. Like you've known me forever. I wouldn't do that. I didn't talk about you. And, you do hear him kind of whimper and moan out. And at this point he's brought the um, ax out and does a few things. And ultimately a wound to his head is what kills David. So this is Matthew again, Ivan's great nephew. He goes to trial. He does say after the murder to a friend, Matthew does, he says, quote, you know me, you know, my family, you know, the last name a lot. I did what they do. So then people have taken that to say that like all of them were in on this kind of thing. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I do think, um, I do think that it wouldn't be absurd to think one or two of his siblings, even if they didn't directly participate in the murder mm -hmm. could have helped with some other things. Maybe not everybody didn't know that these gifts they were getting were from victims, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I think that that could be the case for sure. Um, in 2012, 19 year old Matthew was sentenced to 43 years in prison for his crime. He has to serve 30 years before becoming eligible for parole. Um, like, it's just sickening, sickening. He wrote a poem called Your Last Day. He's got, more, I've got these poems here. I might put up a couple pics on Instagram of those. Um, but then it's interesting because, like, so Ivan was not pleased is how they word it with his nephew's crime. He, he was shocked and ashamed. Um, but again, remember he maintains his own innocence the whole time. So he dies without, they really hope they investigators, meaning um, upon his deathbed and the days and weeks prior to his death, when they knew his condition was turning grave, they tried many last ditch efforts to just come on, man. Like it doesn't change anything either way. Just let us know. Like, and uh, he, he continued to maintain his innocence. But his mother, Margaret, maintained his innocence the entire time, uh, the entire time that he was in prison. But and Margaret would say they were living here when those murders were meant to happen. I did all their washing. There was no blood. They were good boys. Um, yeah, this is kind of what she what she's saying. But. The last time she went to visit Ivan, he had moved um, to that just opened that high risk management unit mm -hmm. named Supermax uh, in 2000, 2001 of September. So he was in there serving all of his uh, sentences. And it says that after Margaret returned from visiting Ivan, she had lunch with her youngest child, George, who noticed something was up. George looked at her and said, Mom, did he tell you something you didn't want to hear? And George says that Margaret replied, he admitted he was guilty. Oh, um, oh yeah. It was Richard, that other brother that said about Shirley and Ivan, mm -hmm. the siblings that were having the sexual relationship. What's the difference, one or the other, if you're doing it with your sister or you're made up the road? That's what he said, actually. So, um <laughs> Oh my. But anyway, so we don't know for sure that he confessed to his mother, but his brother says that his mother admitted to his confession. And I believe she died in like 2004. Um, and then the nephew is still in prison. And then we've got, we can't do it tonight, y'all. We can't do it. We got 20, 25 pages of possible related victims. 
pages and pages and pages and stories that go with it. And a lot of them were stabbed. A lot of them were backpackers in the same area, all the same thing. But these would have been prior. These would have been like in the 70s. So while he was charged and convicted, thankfully, of seven of them, there potentially could be double, triple easily that number, it sounds like, um, that we don't know about. We've got Jerry in the chats that said, uh, just curious, any info on how he knew to stab someone to incapacitate them without killing them? Uh, they were they all grew up, they kind of worked on a, like his dad, like I said, was a wharf laborer, but his family also had a market, a garden market that the kids would help at. I do think that there were some animals around here and there. He could have figured it out yeah. by doing things with animals mm -hmm. that we didn't, you know, that we don't have account of. Um, but I do think it's probably fairly decently public knowledge that if the spinal cord is severed, you're going to be, you know, so maybe he, or maybe he, maybe yeah. he accidentally stumbled upon it. You know what I mean? Maybe he tried it out and it worked. Yeah. There were, I mean, coming out of like World War II, you had uh, OSS spies and stuff that were trained to take down sentries is what they would do. And you could find small publications about like um, W.E.B. Fairbairn wrote about it and how to put a dagger in the back of someone's skull or mm -hmm. things like that. So, I mean, it could be where at some point, like you said, he ran across something like that or just figured out if I hit him yeah. just right at this certain part, then boom, because yep. it's at the base of the mm -hmm. skull, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what potentially happened in the Ellen Greenberg case. If you remember, she's the one that mm -hmm. they deemed a suicide. Yeah. Yeah. But unintentionally, yeah, like right. he, he wasn't like yeah, playing with her. It was yeah. a rageful thing. And he, but, but she had those, um, her spinal cord was severed and that's why it looks like that's why she immediately dropped to the floor because all your crime scenes on the floor. And yeah. that's why she, her body would have been laying the way it was. Go listen to that case. If you have not, we've got some people in the chat asking, saying, so is this a 20 part series? It could be. Um, and also someone asked Bosco asked, did they ever look into Shirley? As far as I know, uh, Shirley was not looked into because like I said, at some, at some point during trial, like his defense team tried to say that maybe one of his other brothers could have been implicated in this and it, all of that got washed away. So I don't think they actually looked into Shirley either. I think when they got him, they knew for sure it was him. I, I don't think there was anything to link her to it. Right. Like I don't think there's any way to prove that at that point, because we've got him, we have his DNA, we have witness accounts of him and he let his first few victims accidentally flee. So, mm -hmm. um, Hey, cupcakes and cameos. We've got, uh, when you say, uh, we got, so, okay, guys, for all of you who are kind of new listening here, we've wrapped up the case. And so we're going to kind of engage our friends in the chats here, hop in the chats. If you are, <laughs> working on my chair. If you are new you to this, like you're adjusting a seat like a 76 and I don't know. You I've got a rock and move forward. If y'all could even see the professionalism of this chair that I'm sitting in. <laughs> um, you know, uh, at the end of the show, now that we've talked the case, we'll engage with questions or things like that. Uh, for those of you who don't know, BC Sanders is a retired homicide lieutenant. And so he comes in great, great deal of handiness and a wealth of knowledge when it comes to these cases and just bouncing things off of him and asking these kinds of things. Um, so we always enjoy that perspective and input as well with that, uh, with that experience. But uh, we've got a lot of people or a few people in the chats tonight that are uh, asking about the case and 
Jerry, Jerry just said this case is somewhat early, eerily reminiscent, albeit on a much smaller scale of the Valentine's Day murder investigation. Um, are you talking about like this, like Valentine's Day slaughter? But I know that Asha Degree uh -huh. is a Valentine's Day case because I meant to put that back up at Valentine's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know the one he's talking about. Valentine's what was the? Day. I want to look up the weather in Sydney right now, real quick. I'm curious. Do we have any? Okay, so Jerry said that case was a Orange County case here in North Carolina. Oh, we'll have to look into that. So his comments say, "Yeah, shoot me a uh, shoot me a text with a link to it, Jerry." Um, Marine blood. Marines blood mm -hmm. I was asking about hey, my YouTube channel. So I wasn't trying to hijack the chats and plug my stuff. Oh, I can't he even read asked. half the chats. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, I am on YouTube, but I'm slowly learning how to post videos and stuff. So there'll be more coming out. Okay. So in September, when we talked about the bodies that were found Um, in Sydney in September, but they had gone missing in April. In September, the average temperature is around 70 degrees. And it looks like in April, it's actually even warmer. So around between 70 to 75 in April down to between like 65 and 70 in September. So, so like, then, they, so yeah. they wouldn't have been preserved from weather anyway. Yeah. And that's is there a chance that there was just a wild animal that smelled, but they stumbled oh, yeah. upon bodies? Yeah, you know what definitely. I'm saying? Like, yeah. Well, like um, Jerry put in the comment too. If if he was half buried, maybe, or if the victim was half buried, you may end up having that down the road. But yeah, you're probably right. You could have had decomp coming from an animal. And if you don't know the difference, you know what yeah. I'm saying. If you don't know the difference in human decomp and animal smell, because yeah. it is different. Yeah. Um, Greg in the chat, La Montaña, says, is the family still around with that many kids? Imagine they're not well liked due to the connection. Yeah, a lot of them are still around. Uh, I wouldn't mind to try to get up with um, Boris. Mm -hmm. I was very interested actually in talking to um, his, the girlfriend earlier on or the one that was the the girl that was um got married to ivan but was his cousin's girl that was pregnant with the mm -hmm. baby because she experienced like the abuse from him sadly but briefly before she got the divorce the one who's he burned down her parents house um because there are there are a few of them that are willing to talk about this still mm -hmm. um and i think these are the ones that kind of just don't align themselves with him so they'll say, like, I know it. Like, I know when I go places, people know this name. And in fact, I think it was Boris that said, like, I'm not offended. I, I get it. Like, this was a horrible case. It was huge. It shined, you know, a huge shadow on this part of town. And I've got, I bear that last name. So he fully understands why it is what it is. Um, yeah. So we've got Davey in the chat saying some of them have changed their name to actually avoid that reputation. Um, but... I just try to put my arm back like um as if around not, me. Like oh, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just get verklempt? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh goodness. No, I thought I was like Fonzie or something. Like I was gonna 
Hook like there was like more, the back, more yeah, like that. Yeah, it just slides. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I did. We've got cupcakes and cameos uh, mentioning about his nephew Matthew going on to be a killer too. I did. I talked about that briefly at the end. Um, yeah, I don't know. This is a crazy case. I don't. Uh, if you listen regularly, or if you don't, I don't often do a lot of closed, completed solved serial killer cases because either one they're like really big and everybody already knows so much about it that you know I, I can't tell you much more about it but or uh I did my interest is really just in unsolves so that's what we generally talk about uh because yes like my interest is in it but also like I've said before I I really enjoy being able to continually say the names of these people whose cases have not been solved and you just never know who's going to hear something or what development might happen at some point. Um, Chuck Nasty like in the chat. Yeah. yeah. What's up, Chuck? <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, so, but, but I do appreciate Davey's recommendation. I tell you guys all the time, if you have a case you want us to talk about, please send it in. And this is case in point. Davey's been sending this one in for months and, and do as Davey did. Just keep telling me because I will say, okay. And, and I mean it, I'm being honest. And then it just goes whoop, right out the other side and I get busy. So um, I'm happy to look into anything. And Davey provided a lot of resources on this one as well. So um, as always, we really appreciate you guys, you listeners. And BC is a uh, host of Disruptors podcast, if you haven't listened to him. So they do a lot of fun stuff too. So he doesn't have live shows that air, but they do air on the Disruptors podcast um, with BC and Ski YouTube channel, and they have an Instagram page of the mm -hmm. same name and BC Sanders Instagram channel, uh, <laughs> and you've got merch at Minor League Studios. Yes, uh, we're now in the like, we're now in the closing credits of the show. Yeah, it's like this is like the it's all rolling up the rolling, thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, new episode should be out tomorrow, I think, or it could be posted tomorrow. Do you know? You want to tell us what it, a little bit about yeah, it? Yeah, it's uh, Hector Bravo. It's a guy who grew up in California, mm -hmm. skating, listening to pop punk okay. uh, in the 90s. Okay. Um, joined the Army and his senior year when he signed a contract, 9-11 happened. Oh, wow. He goes overseas. He does two tours, comes back, and then spends over a decade California corrections and moves up through the ranks. But he speaks out on the kind of the corruption that's going on on higher levels. Uh, in California and the changes in the prison system and that sort of thing. And oh, he wow. talks about what it's like being on the yard and stuff. So okay, you know, gangs, you know, in prison. So it's, yeah, he's got his own YouTube channel. It's just Hector Bravo. Okay. And he'll post videos and stuff. But yeah, that's the next episode coming out. And then probably the next one after that will be with a uh, blood gang member. I've already recorded that one. I just got to post it. Yeah. So, um, for those of you who don't know or might be interested, BC offers, he's got years and years of experience here and he offers classes um, on, on different things. But if you follow him on Instagram or email him at the disruptors podcast.bc.ski at gmail.com, you can get in on some of these classes. He does a lot virtually. So all you have to do is just you, you Venmo to secure your seat. And then uh, he holds up to like X number of people in that virtual class. And so he's broken down different sects of gangs. So he's done like the um, Chicago games, gangs that have moved south. He's mm -hmm. done that. Look, I'm going to start teaching it. your own classes for you. And so 
if any of those you're interested in, you can always do that. But what he's done most recently that I find really interesting is he's got, um, do you want to tell him? Oh, the, like the sessions? The well, sessions. what you've done like today and yesterday. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have um, a source that I've worked with for many years and actually brought him into classrooms and stuff with me. Um, so he's a gang member uh, or was, but we do private sessions so you can reach me. Uh, I'll send you the link and we do audio and video like that. And we can talk everything from how to set up your gang unit, how to gather Intel, how to develop sources. Uh, he'll give you his perspective on that as well. Um, so we've gotten a lot of really good feedback and Jerry Falk there. I was the going chats. to I know. <laughs> Jerry Falk's in the chats tonight uh, over, a hum or over a decade investigating homicides. And he's starting to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. He's starting to do sessions um, virtual like that on different blocks of instruction from cold case investigations to crime scene. to So a lot of you guys that listen to this show, since it's true crime, will be interested in the stuff he's done. Now, I know, BC, your classes are for both sworn and non-sworn, meaning you can be a civilian or a law enforcement officer. Some of those cases are tailored or classes are tailored certain ways, depending um, upon the audience in that sense. Now, are Jerry's for everyone as well, or are they for he just is, officers um, or civilians? He historically has Jerry? trained officers, detectives, agents. Um, I think he's going to design some stuff. Okay, for civilians for citizens. as well. Yeah, so if people are interested, you can reach out to him at jfaulk658 at gmail.com. And he's in the chats. So I could have just and, gone straight to the horse's mouth because he said, yes, they will be for both civilian and law enforcement. So that's great. Y'all are doing good stuff there. Um, mm -hmm. Jerry, I don't know if you know it, but on the last show I asked BC if it was a conflict of interest, if I took your classes. So <laughs> Jerry is the main. <laughs> so anyway, you guys, if you're interested in that, shoot a message. There will be some local stuff here um, on the East coast as well. If you want to do some in-person classes that are a bit more intensive and, um, a longer duration and those kinds of things mm -hmm. come come March and we'll talk about that. But um either way, we love seeing you guys and love having you out there. Do all the stuff that I hate asking you to do, right? Like subscribe, like if you just hit download, then you don't have to do it every time I think. Yeah. Still don't really know. I mean, just like all those buttons that don't cost any money, click, click them. them all. Just click them. That's it. <laughs> click air last one of them. Click air last one of them buttons. <laughs> um but yeah, we appreciate all you guys in the chats and everybody who shows up. So just keep on keeping on. I hope y'all have a great week ahead. You got anything else to add? I do not. <laughs> oh, that's weird. That looked real that's, that's weird. It, it looks like my arm's 32 feet long. <laughs> go, go, gadget. All right. Well, you know what, guys? Until next week, we will see y'all next Tuesday. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not.